My name is Mark McGregor. I've been involved in politics and communications for about 30 years. Um, that includes time as chief executive of the Conservative Party, deputy director of a think tank policy exchange, and then a kind of variety of uh, roles where I've advised companies um, on how they might address reputational or regulatory issues. Most recently, I work for the world's biggest uh, tobacco company, uh, Philip Morris International. Welcome to Why Everybody Hates You, an audio support group for reputation professionals. If you have any responsibility for how people talk, think and feel about your organisation, then you are in the right place. My name is Daisy Powell Chandler, and today I'm talking to Mark McGregor of Stonehaven about why all companies feel picked on by the government and what they can do about it. Welcome, Mark. It's really great to have you. Why does everybody hate you today? I think it's one of these interesting trends that uh, there's a lot of anger about lots of issues in society, but I think business, particularly large businesses, have suffered a, a fall in their kind of wider reputation for over decades. Uh, and, you know, you see it when I was at Policy Exchange, one of the things I was interested in was that we would constant, I, I had to deal with all of our corporate clients. And what I felt was every time I opened a conversation with them, it was them bemoaning the fact that they felt under assault from the government. Um, and that may have been true. Um, but I think that does represent a sort of wider societal shift where people are much more likely to be critical of the behavior and activities of big corporates. What do you think is causing that? It is interesting. I mean, if you go back to something like, I mean, I think there's been a, there's been a long, there's a long-term trend. There are particular industries that perhaps behaved badly. Um, and that set off a, a sort of train of behavioral changes amongst the wider population to be suspicious of particularly big corporates. And it is interesting to contrast how people contrast, you know, the local corner shop, the the businesses, the pubs they have a relationship with, and their attitudes towards large corporates. So maybe it's just part of a wider trend where people have become much more skeptical about institutions full stop, you know, from the government to the media and maybe now to businesses. But if it's a trend that's affecting everyone, is that something businesses should be fretting about? Or, you know, is there a sort of generalised lack of trust means that, well, everyone's in the same boat? Well, I think lots of businesses are in the same boat, but I think that, that doesn't mean that you can't separate yourself out from the rest of the pack. Are there... Does it mean that every supermarket has to be seen the same way, or does it mean that every single industry has to be seen the way same way? I don't. So I don't think so. I think there are things you can do that have a an impact on your uh, reputation, um, but they I think they require bold action. Um, and I, when I was working at uh, Philip Morris International, for example, one of the things I said there was, you know, obviously tobacco companies have a have a pretty appalling reputation, but doing nothing means nothing changes. And I think for most corporates, actually taking proactive big steps uh, to address reputational issues um, requires courage. And it requires you to do things that separate yourself out from the pack. And that, again, can make you more uh, vulnerable. 
When you say courage, I speak a lot to clients who think that really means money. Do courageous actions always have to affect the bottom line, do you think? No, in fact, I think often the bottom line is the last piece that's affected. I think companies, I think there are, I guess there are three things I think about. Um, the first is companies have to learn how to talk in real language, language that ordinary people can understand. So often you see sort of corporate communications and it, it, it looks as if it's gone through some, some sort of uh, mangled uh, corporate speak before it arrived in the outside world. The second is, and I'm sorry <laughs> to be critical, but um, the lawyers in most companies are often both hugely cautious about saying anything. And second, um, they are they don't necessarily have the same connection with the outside world that the head of corporate affairs would do. So they don't necessarily see it through the same prism. And so actually often the words they insert make it harder to understand. Um, and the, the first, third thing is I do think that you, you can't lie low. You know, it's impossible to, uh, to shield yourself and assume that nothing bad will ever happen because inevitably, you know, company, big companies, that many of which are uh, affected by uh, regulations in all sorts of different areas, big companies make mistakes, and those mistakes are often extremely visible to the public. So you have to go and earn some credit, and some of those things are about taking big steps. But I don't think I don't think the heart of it is about about money. It's about being sort of honest, talking in a way that people understand. And actually, if you do want to make some changes, about trying to both say what you're going to do and then to deliver on those commitments. And how did that manifest itself at Philip Morris, where you were busy telling them they needed to be more courageous? Well, I actually remember the time when someone phoned me up and asked me if I wanted to be corporate affairs director in the UK for uh, the world's biggest tobacco company. I actually, actually laughed and said, well, of course not. What, why on earth would I want to do that? But then they explained that the company was on a, a journey to exit away from cigarettes. And I thought, you know, this is, a, I'd actually worked for the Conservative Party um, back in the early 2000s when they were incredibly unpopular. Um, and I thought, this is, a, this is an incredible reputational challenge. It feels like it's the ultimate reputational challenge to help them move away from being a tobacco company into one that sold less harmful alternatives. So in some ways, I, I felt that it was the, you know, it was like the ultimate uh, reputational challenge. Uh, and of course, I saw myself as an external, even when I worked there, I still saw myself as someone who had that external perspective and was able to say, look, if you want to meet society's expectations, um, then you know, you've got to make proper commitments about not just saying we're going to go smoke-free, which is their expression, but how practically you're going to achieve that that goal. Do you think that's something that all corporate affairs professionals, reputation professionals need to achieve, that external perspective? I think so. I, th I think it's, well, I think it's one of the things that the, and it's even more true now during the sort of COVID crisis, it's more true now than ever that corporate affairs professionals are the, are the voice in the boardroom advising the CEO or the MD 
um, about you know how their company's actions might be reflected in the wider world. And you know you've seen some very good and some very bad examples of companies you know, not really understanding that their activities actually can reflect really badly or really well uh, during a crisis uh, like this. Um, and I, th I think there's an expectation in society that companies are not there just to simply make a profit and employ lots of staff and pay tax. They actually have a wider duty to society. And during a big crisis like this, not just the government, but the wider public expects companies to step up and play their part. And I've seen plenty of examples. I saw British Aerospace, for example, um, that had taken part in the ventilator challenge. I saw they'd been you know, helping out on the PPE front. So there are companies that are stepping out of what they traditionally do and seeing that they have, a, have that wider role. I suppose the important question then, though, for corporate affairs professionals is, how do you embed yourself within a company enough to get the rest of the team to trust you and to affect real change while still maintaining that external perspective to help them understand how other people see them? You're right. That is a, uh, an incredible challenge. And the longer you work in an industry or the longer you work for a particular company, the more divorced you can become from that external perspective. One of the things I, one of the reasons why I think it's it's important to use um, agencies is that often they bring not just that external perspective of your industry, but how other industries and companies are, are acting. And that is an important piece of the, of the puzzle that, you know, when you're advising uh, the CEO, then actually or the board as a whole when you're advising those people one of the things you are trying to bring is not just well look this is what our competitors are doing but this is what other industries or other companies are doing and it's actually often you learn your best lessons about how you change uh, perspectives about your organization by looking outside your industry so i think that's an, an incredibly important part of that um, of that process uh, and often when you're in a you know when you're in a particular sector there is this sort of tendency to kind of man mark the other companies and spend so much of your time both on what you're doing and what your direct competitors are doing that you don't lift your eyes to see that actually some of the best examples um, of things that you might do are actually uh, from other industries and that, that particularly if you want to separate yourself from the pack so to take Philip Morris, example, there are four big tobacco companies in the world. Philip Morris is the one that's made a commitment to going smoke-free. It's the only one that's made uh, a commitment to exiting the cigarette market. But actually, the, the things they have to do to demonstrate that, I think a lot of those things are the lessons they're going to learn from other companies that have faced similarly big reputational, reputa reputational challenges because they, want to, they can't learn much from the, from the direct competitors. What do you do, though, if you are number two or number three? I often talk to clients who say, oh, well, we there's no point in us going for a net zero pledge, for example, because someone in our industry has already done it. What do you say to those people? There's a very simple way of thinking about this. You, you can There are some, a whole bunch of wider societal trends, and companies do face a choice. They can either go with those trends, and you mentioned that it's got a, the, the growing importance of climate change and the commitment to net zero. You can either say, we're going to need to get on board that train, and we're going to need to do recognize societies moving in this direction, and we're going to have to adjust our behavior accordingly, or you can resist it. But actually resisting it comes at a, uh, a cost. 
um, and potentially big cost further down the line to both your reputation, but also it might have an impact um, commercially. So you're right, it can be difficult to be the the, the second company uh, to, for example, I've seen that BP have made a big commitment to, to net zero, and you might then argue, well, other companies might, um, it might be more difficult to do that. Yes, but in the end, it's not just about making a statement. It's about what you are practically going to do as a company. So it's not simply issuing a press release, we've signed up to this. It's like, okay, what are the direct practical steps that your company is doing day in, day out to live up to that promise? And one of the things that I think is easy for companies to get caught up is, oh, we've made this commitment. It's done. You, yeah, that's not how the public sees it. So actually, I think companies that don't go first can often, if they play it cleverly, can actually be the ones that uh, that do it properly. You know, they actually take their time to put in place the programs that are actually going to be measurable changes, not just simply a press release. And how do you help the companies that you've worked for and with to quantify not only the upside of making those big announcements, making those changes, how do you help them to see the losses that could be incurred if they don't act? That is one of the most difficult areas because um, often many of the companies that people like us are advising are tremendously successful commercially. Um, and therefore, there's often the sense of why does our reputation, our corporate reputation matter? Um, and I guess the only uh, answer is to point to examples um, of corporates that have suffered over a longer period of time or industries that have suffered um, blows to their reputation. And then to think, well, has that had an impact on their ultimately on their bottom line? But you're right for a company that is doing uh, very well, um, then it can seem like, well, why do you know? There is this sort of sense of why should we, uh, why should we bother? Um, and I think the only thing I would say is that often the people who work at the top of companies live in with a live themselves within a slight bubble, where they talk to their clients, they talk to their suppliers, they talk to their staff, but they never really reach out to the wider world. And so one of the things I've always enjoyed doing is um, asking the CEO, the MD, whoever it might be, to actually attend a focus group. So you hear what people directly say about their company when they can see it, but they're not in the room to make the argument. Because I think that's what brings it home, that actually if people think that about you, how on earth are you going to not just survive now, but how are you going to build your brand in the future? Mm, that is one of my favourite techniques as well. Uh, video Vox Pops are also a great backup if you can't get them to a focus group because some of them are resistant. And further back, you were CEO of the Conservative Party. Which was a bigger reputation challenge, tobacco or the Conservative Party? I think working in politics, one thing I would say, I, th I do think that working in any form of um, public-facing position, making the argument, whether you're an MP, whether you're the Corporate Affairs Director, the Comms Director, the CEO, I think it has been a, it has become a lot more difficult. I think that's the, the principal thing, that, you know, the criticism, the, vi the vile tweets and messages on Facebook about you and your family and your behaviour, I think a lot of that um, actually make people, does actually have an impact in terms of making people more cautious. You know, you think about who on earth 
uh, in their right mind, apart from political obsessives, would now decide they want a career as a member of parliament. You know, I remember a time when there were plenty of people who'd achieved uh, big things outside politics. Archie Norman, for example, in the early 2000s, you know, done great things in business, decided he wanted to be an MP and then become a minister. Well, who on earth in their right mind, If who are the Archie Normans now that decide to step forward? The answer is they're very few and far between. So I think there's been, and I think, so I think the, uh, the sort of negativity around people who are in the public eye do actually have a, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting, the other side of the coin, they have an impact on people's willingness to put themselves forward. And therefore, you end up with companies, politicians actually becoming even more cautious about what they're willing to say because they think, well, we put our we put ourselves up uh, above the parapet. We're only going to get shot down. What was the hardest part of that job back in the day pre Twitter? What was the hardest bit? I guess the hardest part was making, again, coming back to reputation, making helping the party to understand precisely how disliked it was and how much it become disconnected from uh, Britain as it is. Um, and and I mean, just as one example. Um, at that point, there were, I think there were six out of 150 odd MPs, the Conservative had six women, and they had uh, two uh, BME uh, members of parliament. Um, and there was no particular sign that that was going to change anytime soon. But there were large members of parliament, large members of the party who simply did not see that as a as a problem. Fortunately, it was one of the things that certainly under David Cameron was, was addressed. Um, but... It, helping again giving that external perspective helping the conservative party to understand that if you wanted to have a chance of getting back into power you had to take some big steps big changes um to actually demonstrate that you weren't the party that the, that the people might have thought you were and it's it's same, it's same with your know, big corporates if you want to achieve anything to change your reputation you do have to do big, bold initiatives, because otherwise it simply won't, it won't cut through. So what has been the thread running through all of those jobs then? What motivates you to keep working in this field? The, the sense that um, reputation matters and that you can do something about it. And the pleasure of being able to persuade uh, those in uh, either running the Conservative Party or in senior positions in all sorts of businesses, that actually you can take proactive big steps uh, that actually can begin to shift your reputation. It's not easy to do, um, but you know, you can, I think it is possible. And to take the, you know, some of the things we talked about earlier, which was, you know, there've been shift downwards in how the wider population and politicians and regulators view businesses. I don't think that's inevitable. I think that that could change. Maybe business has to change in order to help make that happen. But I think it is possible if many businesses decide to, to, to do the right thing, to make the changes that are necessary to address those concerns, I think you could see a shift in that that negative perception of, of of sort of corporates um and, and in a way it's of course in the in the end it's in it's actually in the interest of those businesses to take those steps because businesses clearly businesses with better reputations will do better in the longer term right now things are quite topsy-turvy has that changed what businesses need to do in order to make those big changes i actually think there are more opportunities now 
Um, Post-COVID, there's obviously it's going to be a, for many businesses, uh, large and small, it's going to be a very tough time just to survive. But I do think that the government is open to businesses that come up with uh, big pitches that can actually deliver on the government's own agenda. Um, and one of the other advantages is that the government has just spent a monumental amount of money. I remember when Liam Byrne left his famous note for David Cameron saying there's there's no money left. Um, well, it's like that note on steroids. So I think that because the government is going to have very limited money to spend on some big projects, whether it's infrastructure spend, uh, whether it's making improvements to health or education, I do actually think that there is a real genuine opportunity uh, for companies that have big ideas to take those to government and then help both fund them and implement them. Um, so in some ways, there is a bigger opportunity now than there might have been uh, pre-COVID to actually have maybe ideas that you've had sitting in a cupboard somewhere and maybe have never had the courage to bring out. Maybe now's the time to say, look, we've got something very significant, very important we can do, not just for our business, but for society as a whole. So maybe some of those things, maybe it's time to see whether those things are actually possible to achieve. And before we wrap up, do you have any tips that you could offer for reputation professionals who are out there who perhaps aren't getting the external stimulus they would like right now, don't have as many colleagues to bounce ideas off? What should they be doing to help the organisations in which they work? I guess there, there would be three. The first is that doing nothing changes nothing. So actually taking taking some positive, proactive steps to to communicate to the wider world must be a good thing. And if you can come up with something bold and imaginative that actually cuts through so much, the better. The second is I think so many companies are are focused on when their relationships with government are ask, almost feels like they're asking for favours. Well, I think they need to look at it through the other lens. How is it that your company, your organisation, can help solve the government's problems, not just help your organisation? And the third thing is, I think for people like us, then looking at uh, examples from other industries, it's so easy when you work for a company to get caught up in you know, what you and your direct competitors are doing, that sometimes you forget that actually some of the best lessons you learn about changes that your company can make are those not from your industry, but from elsewhere. And I think applying those ideas in a big, bold way, could be hugely useful for, uh, for many colleagues. That's everything from us. A big thank you to my guest, Mark McGregor of Stonehaven, for sharing experiences from across his fascinating career and giving some useful tips to inspire our lockdown brains. I hope you'll join me in two weeks' time when I'll be talking about why data matters for your reputation. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do find us at whyeverybodyhatesyou.co.uk. Subscribe and leave us a review on your favourite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Why Everybody Hates You. And remember, you are not alone.